Thank you. It's great to be here. Welcome to this panel. We're very excited to showcase research going on in, me in the Media Studies Department, which I am very proud of since I did have the opportunity to start it. Uh, I want to introduce our first speaker, Mr. Wyatt Andrews, Professor of Practice, wait, <laughs> Practice College, uh, Professor of Practice in the College and Grad School of Arts and Sciences in our department. Uh, we are so excited to have Professor Andrews in Media Studies. He had a 41-year career as an award-winning television news correspondent including 34 years with CBS News. He joined Media Studies in the spring of 2016 and is the first faculty member within our department to hold this title, Professor of Practice. Our students were clamoring for him for years before we were able to land him. Um, this is a university appointment reserved for distinguished professionals who've been recognized internationally or nationally for contributions in their field. Andrew shared in the Columbia DuPont Silver Baton Award presented to CBS Evening News in 2014 for its coverage of the mass shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. He also won three Emmys during his CBS career for his coverage of the 1984 assassination of Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, the 1986 Reagan-Gorbachev summit in Reykjavik, Iceland, and the 2003 Washington, D.C. sniper case. More recently, Andrews specialized in covering healthcare and veterans affairs. His lecture class, The News Media, deconstructs how the news is covered the trends shaping the digital news revolution and the necessity articulated by Thomas Jefferson of having a strong watchdog press. Andrews is also teaching a fall spring sequence of practical multimedia reporting classes with basic reporting scheduled each fall and advanced reporting in the spring. So I give you Wyatt Andrews. I think I have this, yeah. I think I'm gonna. I think I have this uh, this guy here. Does that work? Yeah. Everybody, good morning, and um, thanks for turning out so early on such a spectacular day. Uh, the um, I admire your style in uh, going after an academic conference for the first thing. I'm sure that um, the academics will only increase by 11:30, 12 o'clock tonight, or you be. Uh, intellectual challenges will just increase throughout the day. Um, I feel like it's important that we in the Media Studies Department, what Andrea uh, should have but did not take credit for, is that Media Studies is, I think, the most rapidly expanding uh, major in the college. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I ask my advisees, and I see parents of one of my advisees here in the, here in the crowd, you guys just can't stay away, right? Um, you know, why? What's up with media studies? They almost to a person, men and women, will say something on the order of it's this great mix of academic analysis and uh, real-time relevance. And if you think about it, uh, look, the millennial generation is on this all day long. They are on media all day long. So from their point of view, they're thinking, why not study it? And so this whole idea that we need, um, we need to generate um, a, a generation of uh, young Americans who understand how this functions um, as Americans and as citizens could not be more important. Uh, and so that's why all of us in, me all of us in media studies, we, all, we have this sense that we are kind of like the dogs that caught the car. You know, we've, we have been howling about our relevance all this time, and now students uh, get it. They vote with their feet. Um, one of the things, but I realize that we don't have a lot of time, and you want to hear from these other experts, so I want to tell you one of the main things I tell them. This. Now, I'm not trying to get you to love the New York Times or the Washington Post. I am trying to get you to love the printed newspaper. 
This is original. This is derived. Original derived. What do I mean by that? This, you might hate what the reporter says. You might think they're liberal, they're biased. You can you, you put any label on it that you want. Um, but this stuff is written by a reporter who went to the hearing, who spoke to the sources, um, who got the sources to leak them classified information, which is not always a bad thing. Sometimes it's a very patriotic thing. Um, they went to the courthouse. They did the deep dive into the data themselves, and then they wrote it. And more important, if they get something wrong on purpose, they can be fired. Okay? If you don't remember anything else I say, remember that here, this is whatever. That's whatever. You might get some of this, but you're really getting whatever. Now, there are very good things to know about news on a device. It democratizes information. We hear from more people that we didn't hear from before. But the folks who are on this generally and I think in a 90-10 basis, can't be fired if they get things purposely wrong. In fact, there's an economic incentive to get things wrong because the, uh, all, almost all news in the United States is based on advertising, and if you can get someone to click on your site, you get paid. All right, that's, that's the difference. That's new, and it's new at a scale that I'll describe in just a second. Here's what's not new, the charge of fake news. This is a quote I didn't, as for what is not true, you will always find abundance of that in the newspapers. Well, did you really think you were getting away with no mentions of Thomas Jefferson? I'm sorry. Second slide, Thomas Jefferson. Hey, you're here. He said that in 1806 when he was being hammered for Sally Hemings. Um, it tore Mr. Jefferson up that the newspapers were critical of him um, in a way, he felt that they had not been of John Adams, um, all president. And remember, he's saying this in a kind of, he was one of the intellectual authors of the First Amendment. He wanted the First Amendment in place so that tyranny could not return. It's not because he loved newspapers. That's what he thought about newspapers. I, 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 didn't, I don't even have the one up where he calls what's in the newspapers putrid. All right, so that was Jefferson, 1806. So the charge of being lied about is 211 years old. So here's our current president. The fake media is working overtime today. So very little difference, right? Wrong. Jefferson is complaining about his coverage. And that's fine. All presidents have complained about their coverage, starting with him, starting with Washington, actually. Donald Trump, this particular tweet, the fake media is working overtime today, came on the day that James Comey, the FBI director, was fired. And of course, Trump is trying to tell us that all of this is, uh, is fake. Here's another good one. Fake news media doesn't knowingly, knowingly does not tell the truth, a danger to our country. The failing times have become a joke. CNN is sad. Absolutely no difference in eloquence between Mr. Trump and Mr. Jefferson, all right? <clears throat> all right, but it's not new. What's new is the scale. Fabulous research was done by the Pew Research Center two years ago. And on a national survey that's very well respected, they came up with the fact that Facebook now reaches, that is the number of people who say they see face news on Facebook, 67% of US adults, two-thirds of whom say they get their news on Facebook. Doesn't say how often, but two-thirds of our adult population gets news on Facebook. 44% of the population, I'm not great at math, so if I'm wrong, call me out. But that's a potential audience of 143 million Americans at any one time getting news on Facebook. Folks, this is an unimaginable scale of news. I mean, if you go back to Jefferson, so there might have been 2,000 people in community by community reading the fake news about him or any news that he didn't like about him in one community. But this is 143 million people, and they can share it globally. So we've gone from, and, and I'm sure Chris is going to talk about this later, but we've gone from our isolated little communities where the community is everyone. By contrast, the, the, the second largest, uh, biggest news audience is uh, Lester Holt, NBC Nightly News, 9 million people. OK? 
okay? The scale here is unimaginable, and it's 9 million people who watched Lester Holt for half an hour. That 143 million people exponentiates all day long by clicking, by sharing, stuff that the uh, social media folks call engagements. The scale of the way we share news and don't read news anymore is unimaginable, not compared to 50 years ago, compared to two years ago. Compared to two years ago. The, think about it this way. News was not shared at this level in the last election. It didn't, it, news wasn't clicked in the tens of millions uh, when Romney tried to unseat President Obama. This is brand new, and this is what we're grappling with. So here's a, here's a grab of my Facebook page from this morning, and of course I, I was boning up on, um, on the, the Comey situation. So in the center you get your news feed, and on the right you get your trending. Right? All of this, I know you've heard about the Facebook algorithm, but the way to think about the Facebook algorithm is today you are what you click. You know, your mom told you you are what you eat. Not today. Intellectually, you are what you click because by definition, Facebook is in the business of selling you views. Right? So they get money every time. So I've been shopping for a chair. If I click on that, if I buy that chair, Facebook, if I click on that ad, Facebook gets money. If I buy the chair, they get more money. All right? So all of this, everything on Facebook is reinforcing. So we have set up for ourselves by being consumers on Facebook, we have set, we've given ourselves a kind of a single intellectual chamber uh, from which to get most of our information. If you don't, and this is the second thing I'd, I'd appreciate that you remember. One of our brand new obligations as citizens, and I tell this to our students, is that if you get your news on Facebook, nothing inherently wrong with that, but you have to force yourself into intellectual diversity. Because if all you do is read stuff from the right, read stuff from the left, or all you click on are puppy videos, that's all you're going to get. Oh, five minutes. All right, so here's what really changed. This is all coming from BuzzFeed, which documented this. Pope Francis shocks the world and endorses Trump. Can't read this very well, but Hillary sells weapons to ISIS. Those were the top two fake news stories related to the election. Um, the, only one, the only one against Donald Trump to make the top 20 fake news posts in 2016 was uh, Mike Pence supposedly insulted uh, Melania. All right, all top, the rest of the top 20 were fake, and for the first time ever, according to BuzzFeed, fake news engagements on, on face, Facebook exceeded real news engagements for the first time, 8.7 versus 7.3 in the last um, three months of the election. A lot of the industry was traced to Velez, Macedonia. Now, we had, there's plenty of fake news sites in basements in the United States, don't get me wrong, but there were 150 sites and so in Macedonia. Fake US politics sites have been traced here to Dimitri's Macedonian hometown. He was willing to lift the veil on the food scrap operation, which he claims garnered 40 million views in the past six months. To draw readers, his fake stories copied the style of more mainstream organizations, including NBC News. So the Republicans love the veterans. They love veterans. They respect them uh, in the most of anyone. And what you do is you say Obama donated 300 million to Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton's campaign that he took from veterans. People will open the interview saying why. All right, so another one question when you leave Reunions Weekend I would like you to ask is, what is the media anymore? This is a brand new, I worked in it, as Andrew said, for 41 years, and I'm not sure I could define it. Here is a, uh, here's a great, uh, brilliant take on what I'm talking about from John Oliver, tracing the roots of the, the idea that three million people voted illegally. Millions of people voted illegally, originated, as far as anyone can tell, from some dude on Twitter who claimed in November, while providing no evidence, we have verified more than 3 million votes cast by non-citizens. The next day, InfoWars picked that up and it spread like jet fuel among the right-wing sites. Now, it was quickly debunked by multiple outlets, but despite that, days later, President-elect Trump 
started tweeting about millions of illegal votes and serious voter fraud in states like California. And by early December, people were on TV expressing similar concerns. Voting is a privilege in this country, and you need to be legal, not like California, where three million illegals voted. Where are you getting your information? From the media. And that right there. From the media. So in interest of time, I'm going to move on. But uh, please recall, original <laughs> versus derived. Here, you might not like it, but they can be fired for getting it wrong. Here, you need to work harder as citizens to verify and dig into whether or not what you're posting, sharing, looking at, evaluating has, is worth your time, uh, is a purposeful lie to make money, uh, and is something that you want to share with your friends. I mean, I personally have a close member of my family who was up to 80, 80 anti-Hillary Clinton shares every single day. But I didn't defriend her, but I, what do you do, blocked her. Uh, let me, uh, I will leave the rest of this to, um, to questions. But one of the things that I would like to leave you with is that one of the biggest changes that we witnessed in the 2016, or after the election, um, was that the, uh, the way that this White House, let me back up a little bit. Harvard recently published a report that, is, that all my students uh, were abuzz about, saying that 80% of Trump's coverage um, was negative. And I pushed back on them saying, fine, but was it deserved? Um, and one of the things that I think is unique about this White House as opposed to the White House I covered, which was the first President Bush, is that the first President Bush or any other president that I know of would never lie from the podium or have their spokespeople lie from the podium. That's another thing I'd like you to watch and, and see and, and view as completely different. If you want to ask yourself what has really changed in the media, it's the use of that podium. And if you're following any of the Comey hearings, um, that's the number one thing Mr. Comey said, that they used that podium to give three or four different reasons for why he was fired. Two days later, Mr. Trump goes on NBC and says, oh, I fired him because of Russia. All right, and it matters because when the first President Bush said that um, Saddam Hussein's incursion into Iraq would not stand, you knew he was telling the truth. How they use the podium matters, and all those things I hope you will... Um, Commit to memory, especially tonight when you're dancing. And uh, let me uh, give the floor back to the rest of our panelists. Thank you. It's a wonderful day to be having this panel. Uh, I'm very pleased to introduce Dr. Christopher Ali who joined our department in the fall of 2013 after completing his PhD at the Annenberg School of, for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. Chris also holds degrees from Concordia University in Montreal and the University of Alberta in Edmonton. He's Canadian. <laughs> his research interests focus on communication policy and regulation, critical political economy, critical geography, comparative media systems, localism, and local news. He has published in numerous internationally ranked academic journals. His newest article, Investigating Alternative Economic Approaches to Local News in the United States, Canada, and the UK, was published in the Journal of Information Policy. And um, the book that just came out, yeah. there are a few books, but tell me the title. Media Localism. Media Localism. And the press is? Illinois. University of Illinois Press. We're uh, excited that his book just a few weeks ago yep. came out. So I give you Dr. Ali. Well, thank you very much, Andrea, and thank you all uh, for being here. It's um, an exciting time to be thinking about news. Um, is that going to work for us here? Is that not I will unplug mine. I want to switch to VGA. Oh, who's that? Um, 
Oh, oh, there we go. All right. Um, so I also think it's really exciting that on a panel about the uh, news in the digital age, both Wyatt and I are going to talk about newspapers. Um, Wyatt, of course, uh, brought up the Washington Post and uh, the New York Times. I'm going to talk about local newspapers, particularly uh, newspapers in small towns across the country. Um, as, as Andrea said, uh, I, uh, I'm an assistant professor here in the Department of Media Studies. I'm also a fellow at the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia University and a fellow for the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. And just as a shameless plug, my book is available at the bookstore for the low, low price of $25.99, <laughs> which makes a great reunion gift you know, for yourself, for your loved ones, um, friends, and neighbors. So today, I'm going to be talking about research that I did as a fellow at the Tau Center on the state of small town newspapers in the United States, um, uh, uh, including things like the Daily Progress here in Charlottesville, uh, Charlottesville, like something like the Register Guard if you're from uh, Oregon, or if you're from Wisconsin, something like the Sheboygan Press. And just out of curiosity, who here has a subscription to a local newspaper? Wow, okay. So not a lot of us, um, but that's all right. Who here does follow local news, though? If not through, okay, excellent. This is what I love to hear. Uh, so we're all engaged with local news, just maybe not through the newspaper. Um, now, most of the time when we think about newspapers, we generally think about a dying industry. And of course, The Simpsons captures it um, perfectly. All right, so your medium is dying, right? This is what we hear about the newspaper industry. And to a certain extent, these are what the numbers tell us, right? In, in the last 20 years, 20,000 journalists have lost their jobs from newspapers. That represents a 39% decline. Um, last year alone, or 2015, circulation fell 7%. And advertising revenue fell 8% in uh, 2015, making it the worst decline in newspapers since the Great Recession in 2009. So not a lot of uh, reason to be excited about this industry, except what I want to do is change this narrative um, a little bit. And I want to talk about the fact that amongst small town newspapers, there's a tremendous amount of optimism about the future of their industry, and a tremendous amount of optimism about uh, the future of local news and local newspapers, despite the fact um, that a lot of them are closing. right? Um, uh, uh, the Pew Center for uh, Journalism says about 100 newspapers have closed. Another report says 245. A third report says 664 newspapers have closed. Um, and yet we have uh, this, this uh, optimism that's circulating amongst small town newspapers. And I want to talk a little bit about why. Why might um, there be optimism? And first, though, um, before I get to this, I I want to just talk about what is a small town newspaper. For us, in our research project, uh, it was one with uh, a circulation of under 50,000. Right? Um, so currently, there are 7,701 regularly published newspapers in the United States. 6,851 of those are um, with less than a uh, circulation of 50,000 a day, making them the vast majority of newspapers in this country. Right? Um, uh, and, and these are newspapers that we never hear about ever. They don't make the coverage about the news industry. Um, so uh, a research team and I uh, set out to, um, to investigate this, right? And we set out to ask, what is the state of these small town newspapers in the United States? And how are they kind of responding to digital technology? Oftentimes when we think about small towns, when we think about small town newspapers, we think of them as being kind of hopelessly analog, right? Um, and we were really interested in trying to figure out, you know, what's going on here? And I, I think this is particularly important because we're in a time in which the Storm Lake Times in Idaho just won the Pulitzer Prize, right? The Storm Lake Times has a circulation of around 2,000, and it won the Pulitzer Prize for editorial. We're also seeing a lot more conversations going around about how mainstream media and how the national press missed the conversation that was going on at the local level, right? How did we get election coverage wrong? We weren't focusing on the local level at all. 
Um, and, and so my research team wanted to join this conversation, trying to figure out, well, what is going on at the local level? And what's going on at the local level is this idea of optimism. So what we set out to do is we interviewed. We interviewed editors and reporters and publishers and, and owners and uh, think tank people and policymakers, funders and innovators. Um, and then we did a survey uh, of, of journalists and um, uh, editors at small town newspapers. And this is just a map of who answered. So we got a, a pretty representative sample of what's going on, or at least geogra uh, geographically speaking, in the United States. And again, leading back to this thing, this idea that there's optimism in this industry, which is really cool. All right, so here's an example from an uh, editor in Fort Collins, Colorado, the Daily Coloradoan. Right? Our page circulation is up year over year and is up over the last two years. And I love to point that out because so often we do hear local news is on its way out and it's a dying industry. And yet here in Fort Collins, we've got more people paying for our product, our news, than we did a year ago. And we have more people paying for that news today than we did two years ago. We have among the highest digital-only subscriber base in our company, and that company is, being, is Gannett. Right? So again, just an example of some of this optimism that a lot of these newspapers are not only optimistic, but they're making money, right? this, which is something we don't hear that much, newspapers making money, believe it or not. Um, we hear more about newspapers closing. Right? Has anyone here live in a town in which they lost a newspaper? No? All right. Well, that's excellent. All right, good. Um, you know, here's another quote. If I were Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett, uh, by the way, owns a, a series of newspapers, particularly in the Mid-Atlantic. He owns, for instance, uh, the Charlottesville Daily Progress and the Richmond Times-Dispatch, right? So he went on a bit of a buying spree of local newspapers in 2013. And uh, a, a quote from someone who used to work in uh, Sheboygan, Wisconsin. If I were Warren Buffett and I had the time and effort, I would, go, I would look for Sheboygans all over the place, because I think you can actually build a newspaper and build a credible media company here. Now, I love this quote not only because I love saying the word Sheboygan as many times as possible, but it demonstrates that there's money to be made in local news and that people are excited about reading it and people are excited about consuming local news, despite the fact that it may not be the sexiest thing imaginable. I mean, reporting on city council meetings and uh, local elections, but it's so important, right? It is so important to democracy, to uh, to our everyday lives, to our, to our communities, trying to understand what it means to be a member of the Sheboygan community or a member of the Charlottesville community. Um, and, uh, and again, we find this idea of optimism. This is just a little, this is just some survey results some of you might be interested in. Um, the fact that there's some job, feeling of job security, which is again something we don't hear a lot in newspapers. And 61% of our respondents said they were very positive or slightly positive about the future of small market newspapers. And we released a report on this a couple of weeks ago. And the amount of times I've gotten emails from young people who have inherited a newspaper wanting advice or wanting to share a story is really cool. Like, I had an email just the other day from someone who's 22 years old and just inherited their family newspaper with a circulation of 500 and planned uh, a really big digital expansion for it. And like, that's, that's really interesting. So something that I tell students, particularly journalism students, is that there's actually jobs. Right? There are actually jobs in small town reporting. And in fact, two of our students, two of white students, just got jobs at small town newspaper, or, um, television stations right? doing on-air on -air work, which is really cool. And again, this is an idea of combating the fact that last year, um, was it no, careercast.com said that the worst job out of 200 was a reporter. <laughs> and at 199 was a logger, like, like, a, like an ax man, right? Um, so those are the worst two jobs in America, being a reporter and then being a logger. Right? And, and I think that these, um, these small town newspapers would really fight against that. I think Wyatt would really fight against that as well. Right, maybe, maybe, yes, right, you would, you disagree? Did I, I'm, uh, did I work at a newspaper? No, that, that being a reporter is the worst job in America. I, I feel boy, like unless you really love your work, yes. It can feel like drudge work, absolutely. <laughs> um, and again, uh, I, I just another great quote from some of, our, uh, some of our interviews. I'm very bullish on the future in terms of energy, that energy is coming back. The optimism is, even though in newsrooms optimism is very rare, 
maybe it's better to say that pessimism is waning. So at least if there's not optimism, at least there's not as much pessimism as there was. So why, why might there be all of this optimism, right? Um, well, the first is that in, in small towns, people still buy and read newspapers, right? Oh, oh five minutes. I got plenty of time. Um, <laughs> not only that, but newspapers are often the only news voice in the community. And I was talking to uh, an editor in, in uh, Calhoun County, uh, which is in Mississippi, in Bruce, Mississippi. And he said that they are the only news voice in not only their county, but in the five surrounding counties. So there's something to be said about you're doing all of the, you're doing literally all of the reporting. And even um, in larger communities, newspapers account for between 50 and 85% of all of the original reporting that happens in a community, right? So uh, uh, when, a, when a television station breaks a story, they're usually doing it because they read it in the paper or heard about it in the paper, right? Um, they also move at a different pace, right? They, they've been able to learn from the mistakes of, of large metro newspapers, right? Like the Philadelphia Inquirer, the, the Charlotte Agenda, um, and some, particularly some of their digital failings, right? So these, these newspapers, because they're the only news voice in the community, because they've got a solid base, they've been able to take it a little bit slower. Now, that doesn't mean um, that we shouldn't push them, perhaps, to move into the digital age. I spoke to a number of editors who either don't have a website or whose website is literally just a scan of the hard newspaper and a scan of business cards, and that represents ads. Um, so there's a, there's a learning curve, but they've been able to weather this kind of economic storm a lot better. There's also the fact that a lot of them publish weekly, um, which has allowed them to take time, which allowed them to reduce some of their costs, and allowed them to get out of the 24-7 news fray. Uh, you know, a lot of times in smaller communities, you know, you don't need to report on a story every, every two minutes or every, every hour on the hour. So the weekly model has been really beneficial for some of these papers. And then lastly, there's the fact that they have been around for a long time. Right? So there's a reputation and heritage that, uh, that they're able to capitalize on and, and able, to, um, uh, uh, able to make money off of. So what are the things that we can do if we're interested in the survival of local news? Well, um, I think we can pay attention to small town newspapers. If, you know, if, uh, yeah, I think we could subscribe to small town newspapers, right? I think you know, for us as academics, we can pay more attention to these papers, right? Case studies and censuses and content analysis. But I think the most important thing is something that we're hearing both from the industry and from us as, as researchers and, and from audiences is that we need to change this narrative that is not just about doom and gloom. Right? It's not about the, the, uh, the, the fake mainstream media, but rather, you know, as, as Robert York said, who um, is an executive at Tronk, which might be the worst company name ever, but um, we as an industry have done this just tragic job of changing this perception that we are, you know, grandma with one foot in the grave. And I think the biggest thing we need to do right now as an industry is to beat back this perception that this is a bad industry to be part of, it's a bad industry to be joining, it's a bad industry to bet on from a financial standpoint. And this is something that the industry recognizes that it's done a really bad job doing. And I think this is something that, that we as consumers and, me, and us as academics have done a bad job doing as well, which is we tend to jump on this bandwagon of a dying industry. But if we look at this industry more closely, we realize that a lot of segments of it aren't dying at all. And that's why I want to say to you, it's time to rewrite the story of local newspapers. Thank you. Right on time. Finally, I would like to introduce the newest member of the Media Studies Department, Dr. Emily Blout, who joins us this fall, we hope. <laughs> Emily holds a PhD in history with a specialty in modern Iranian media and politics from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Dr. Blout is currently a faculty fellow at the American University's Internet Governance Lab a joint project of the School of International Service and the School of Communication. She is the author of the forthcoming book, Soft War, Media, Culture, and the Legitimation of Power in Iran. 
Dr. Blout's scholarship is enriched by over eight years of experience working on foreign policy and national security issues in Washington, D.C. Her background includes advising and serving as spokesperson for a senior member of Congress, directing legislative affairs for a leading Iranian-American nonprofit organization, and working on Turkey and Syria policy issues at the Pentagon. Dr. Blau holds an MA in International Security from the National Defense University, where she also worked as a researcher on projects related to the Iraq War and the National Security Council. I give you Dr. Emily Blau. So is this connected to the internet by any chance? Yeah. Actually, maybe I can just, I think I can just um, plug mine in. Yeah, sure. Here's it. Thank you. All yours. Nope. There you go. I'm just going to take this off right here. Is it okay? I think it is frozen now. Shoot. It is? I'm just trying to get it up. There we go. the internet. Do you have sound on there? Can you? No, I don't have any sound. I'm all set. Um, oh, you know what? The, none, of this, none of the images are showing. It's this right here. Sorry, guys. How's that? There we go. Um, so I want to talk about the internet, but first I want to talk about um, the object of my study and my obsession, my life, and many, many days, it feels like years, in the archives, in huddled in the library, typing away, getting a crick in my neck, um, which is my book coming up, which is called Soft War, Media and the Legitimation of Power in Iran. Um, my fascination with Iran started, I won't, again, I won't bore you with the details, but it started about um, more than 10 years ago now, right when we invaded Iraq in our Iraqi, Operation Iraqi Freedom. Um, and there was an imminent danger, we felt at that time, that we were about to engage in another war in the Middle East. Um, fast forward to now, uh, and several decade now of research into Iran, and, U and specifically the U.S.-Iran relationship. Um, I think the knowledge I have gleaned, and I think the scholarship in this new book, is, is needed more than ever to really understand the relationship between the US and Iran and the relationship between Iranian leaders, the, the ruling establishment, and um, its policy towards media and the dynamics of digital media, and in particular, the internet. So what do I mean by soft war? Does that sound familiar to anyone, soft war? Soft power, right. So scholars suspect that soft war, and um, the translation is actually literally Jengenarm, which is soft war, um, is, is a kind of a hybrid or a Persianization of Joseph Nye's theory of soft power. And this, this theory suggests that American power and a nation's power is vested in its attraction its ability to attract followers. And this thesis really described the way that American pop culture and media products enabled America's engagement with the world. It really facilitated its great power status um, in the, uh, the most recent latter half of the 21st century. So that's a theory. That terminology, it's suspected, was Persianized by the Iranian government to describe 
the infiltration or the onslaught of American, mostly, cultural products into Iran, starting around the time when I started studying Iran, which is around, at this point, it's coming into 2006. And so software I'm using as a, as a heuristic device to get deeper into this relationship between states, the modern state, and, and particularly the state in Iran, and media, and the challenges that this new digital media world really poses to non-democratic regimes. So that's kind of the, the thrust of my, my research, my life, my life's work at this point. Um, I am afraid that there's not going to be able to, we're not going to be able to show the images, but I'll try. So um, just, I'm going to give you a quick story about the use and abuse of this new communication technology that we call digital media or hybrid media. So which I would say is the intersection between old media, um, analog media, like the newspaper, and new media and new networked devices. So the mobile phone, which was really important in the green movement in 2009. Um, the computer, computer software, gaming. Um, so that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about media or hypermedia. So some uses and abuses of this new communication paradigm and tools we saw in 2009 in the wake of the contested presidential election in Iran in which Ahmadinejad was reelected in what many scholars and statisticians believe was a, a fraudulent election. So the announcement was made on June uh, 12th that he had won. People couldn't believe it because there was an, an amazing outpouring of support for the contender, Mustavi, and people started talking, talking on the internet, talking on media, talking between each themselves, but most importantly, talking on Facebook and on um, different social media networks. And that is where you saw that those platforms begin to become a central meeting point and site for the organization of dissent, of popular opposition, the level to which it was unimaginable in the last three de decades, if not more, in Iran. We had never seen, what we witnessed at that point, we had never seen before since the 1979 revolution, the so-called Islamic revolution. So uses and abuses. Here, I, I'm gonna, again, I'm gonna try to show you these images, but I'm worried that, oh, maybe it'll, it'll come up. Um, yeah, the images are not coming up. That's really weird. So I'm just gonna, yeah, I don't know, I'm sorry. The, I had some great images. One of the fun things about researching Iran is uh, the fun images, really artistic renderings um, that you can collect on on Facebook, on social media and such. But what I was gonna tell, show you is examples of the, this technology being a, a weapon for the organizers of dissent, um, using this as a way to galvanize people, have people come out to the streets, but also you see the steady appropriation of those same method, methods by the Iranian government. And these are what we call the plain closed police. So the police who come out but they're in, they're in regular garb, they participate in the infiltrate, and they begin monitoring social media. So it really does, at that point, become a double-edged sword. And the outcome of that contested election, as I argue in soft war, um, is still being felt today, in that the state has succeeded in developing a level of expertise that is, is comparable to you know, democratic advanced de democracies and advanced economies in terms of surveillance and in terms of what I would call the weaponization of the internet and digital media, soft war in a way. So non-kinetic conflict. That's what we're seeing here today and I think that's um, probably the, the new paradigm of communications in Iran. 
So what does that matter to the US? Why do, why do I care about that? Why do I care about that in my studies um, in US-Iran relations and dynamics? Does anybody remember Stuxnet? No? Ring a bell? Yes. Massive information warfare technique, violence um, perpetrated on the, on the computer systems aimed at the Iranian centrifuges that were spinning and uh, was created by, we think, by a coalition of, of US government and Israeli government to stop the centrifuges, to interrupt them. And it went through common software that was being used to operate these systems in Iran. It works, but it also inspired the counter weaponization of uh, programs and software that then Iran has now begun using against the US, soft war. So we're seeing, I guess, the, the weaponization of, of information and this new paradigm of digital media in which warfare is being translated into US foreign relations and US-Iranian relations like never before. I think I'm gonna stop there, but um, thank you for your time. Thank you, Emily. And we have a little time, 10 or 15 minutes, for uh, questions for the panelists from the audience. The question is uh, about uh, local newspapers. Mm -hmm. and news hole that they provide, which is nil for international and in many cases national news, mm -hmm. and where that leaves us um, as a democracy. <laughs> so are you the fact that they don't provide it? or? Well, I think that what we're seeing, though, is that we can look for our national and international news in a lot of different places. I think that the one thing that local newspapers can provide that no one else can provide is local news. And I think we've seen, I think the, there's been an unfortunate turn with local newspapers that when they try to, um, try to stem the tide of, of money evacuating, they, the first place they cut was local. And they started uh, having a lot more wire service, you know, uh, just a lot more syndicated uh, news and information, and they, they stepped away from being local. And, uh, and I see that as, uh, as, a, as a bit of a problem because I do think, you know, we can, we can get local news or uh, international or national news from our CNN, from the New York Times, but we can't get news about Charlottesville um, without, you know, Charlottesville Tomorrow, which is our, our great hyper-local blog here, or the Daily Progress. So I had a question. Um, you talked about the newspapers and you talked about the media in between we have the television networks and the television network websites. Hmm. How do you just, you know, what's your take on those? Where are they in that continuum of the... Um, so the, the uh, all... One of the things I, I teach the students, and it's very hard to, to digest, is that there is there are big-time differences between broadcast news, the legacy... 6.30 p.m., 7 a.m. broadcast news networks, and the 24-7 cable networks. Um, and it's as smart as UVA students are, many of them struggle with the difference because all they see is, is video on their screen. They have no idea what the differences are. And the only way I manage to break through is think about it this way. In broadcast news, generally, you see a reporter in the field. In Cable news, generally, you see a panel discussion because that's how they fill the time, right? And so it's far more likely that you're going to get original, unless it's a breaking news story like a tornado or something like that or, you know, a terrorist attack in London. Um, you are going to, I mean, broadcast news is a little better in the sense that it's got reporters out there on the scene actually talking to real people. But here's what they share. 
cable news and, uh, and broadcast news, they all know that news is moving online, that, that, that the money's not there now, but they know the money's going to be there one day. So they're all moving uh, digitally online. And the problem is, is you know, the advertising industry is based on a, um, a, uh, a notation called CPM. What does it cost to reach 1,000 people, mm -hmm. right? And if it used to be $10, you know, to, to on, on a broadcast news station. All right, now it's 50 cents online. They know they've got, so they're in the midst of this transition. Everybody's, the newspapers are moving online, the TV broadcasts are moving online. Now you can get CBS that's only digital. And sometimes they'll share with the broadcast companies. But um, generally, you, I think you have to be a lot more careful when you move online because they are under pressure to be faster, quicker, to the, the digital side of all of the networks, broadcast and cable, are under the kind of pressure that Chris was railing against. That They're not publishing weekly. They're publishing minute by minute by minute. They're under pressure to tweet. They're under pressure to go on Facebook, Instagram, in, because, in order to, again, exponentiate the audience. And that's where even old school media that the, uh, operates under the kinds of codes of ethics that I was talking about before, that's where it's a, a, a lot tougher. So if you look at some of the, um, if you ask a local politician in any of the areas of the country, and you ask many of the mainstream, I mean, if you ask many of the national politicians, the thing that they hate the most isn't liberal versus conservative. It's the speed with which reporters, local and national, feel the pressure to tweet without verification. That's all. So I'm not sure if I've answered your question exactly, but when you move to something on, that's .com, cbs.com, fox.com, anything.com, um, Caveat mTOR um, is a much better policy. Question back here. Hi, I guess this is for uh, Chris. Um, I'm someone who is uh, still active. I've been 35 years in public relations after I gave up a radio and TV reporting career after I realized I was not going to be the next Wyatt Andrews. <laughs> but I've worked a number of times in uh, PR and crisis situations as well as in school districts, and I wanted to emphasize not so much a question of the, what you're saying in Ohio and Indiana and Missouri, where if you work in a school, uh, a school district that has, a say, a teacher strike, the first move is what's happening in our local newspaper. Uh, I can just, Steubenville, Ohio happened to be the nearest one, and I can just tell you that in this town where uh, this school district of 1,000 people, I knew not even... Uh, CBS is not going to come roaring down its helicopter yeah. to do that, not even the Cleveland Plain Dealer or the Columbus Dispatch, but the, in all these communities, let's get the news into the newspaper because it's still the primary way to influence the thinking of our residents in here. So in a city after community after community, you see that all the time. So, um, and I think, there's, I, I think there's a lot of hope in what you said. Thank you. Question. Uh, thanks. Well, just an observation that uh, uh, I appreciate your difference between cable news and mainstream uh, or, or old news, but uh, being married to a lady who's on cable news and I haven't seen her for most of this year because she's out reporting, uh, I can promise you that they do have good reporters uh, out in the field. Um, my, my question for Chris, um, I, I think that there's a, an awful lot of... Um, correlation between the fact that uh, local newspapers can do well and the fact that they can micro-target uh, an audience based on, on political beliefs or political agendas. Um, and, and if you are in one town that is strongly liberal, you can create a liberal newspaper that everyone therefore believes. In a sense, it's almost, quote-unquote, worse than the perpetual um, you know, social media that people only read what they like, which Wyatt mm -hmm. talked about. Um, how much do you think that is a factor? And, and if so... How do we get rid of that so people are looking at diverse perspectives without ruining the chances for the newspapers? Right. I, that, I think that's an excellent question. Um, I, I, I think the, the, the idea of, of partisanship, or at least politics, is more, impacting more when a, when a hyper-local online news organization comes into a community rather than the legacy newspaper. Um, I think uh, we're still seeing legacy newspapers try to be that catch-all, that generalist 
um, uh, political position in, in smaller communities. But what happens, you know, um, is you know some digital startup will happen in a in a community, and that's when we'll see the um, the political, the really political slant uh, happening. Um, I, I again, I think this is also something that newspapers have done a bad job at, which is um, kind of kind of policing their own media ecosystems and, and trying to figure out what is going on. I think they've gotten a little bit lazy in, in yep. knowing they're the only ones in the community. And uh, so I, I think they need to, and I think they recognize this now, uh, need to step up as an industry and, and become, um, become a leader. But we haven't seen, like for instance, the fake news conversation um, hasn't really trickled into the local level just yet. And maybe because you know that Macedonian um, it's really hard to report I would, on, I would, I would. on Sheboygan um, uh, rather than you know, national politics. Um, but I, I think this is an opportunity for the newspapers to step up again um, uh, in, in their respective communities. Because they're, they're also still really respected, right? So there's still a voice there. Um, people trust their local newspapers way more than they trust national news. And, and, and that's an opportunity that I think is not being um, exploited enough. That's a little bit of a roundabout way to get to your question. Yeah, hi. Um, just a question for Wyatt Andrews. My, my father was a journalist for uh, you know, 30 years for NBC News, and I grew up hearing him talk to me about this code of ethics in journalism. And um, it's just really concerning seeing how news is evolving today online and what you were talking about, the incentives that are sort of driving that. Is anybody working to get this same code of ethics to these social platforms? What is Facebook and others, what are they doing to try to protect themselves against the, the fake news? Uh, the, the, you actually asked two profound questions there right at the very end. Let me, let me deal with them quickly. Yes, there is an association of uh, online, um, got news publishers I think is, is what they call it. But it's very difficult for the online folks to come up with the same kind of uh, code of ethics that the old ma legacy mainstream media do. Mostly because the younger generation wants news in a pointed way. They, want, they don't want news that's overtly point, um, partisan, but they think that the old school affectation, they think that what I used to do where you, you, you generally say, Chris said this, and Emily said that, and you think that that represents fairness. They, they find that there's, there's almost a, a, a cultural, generational rejection of that. So they're going to places like Vice News, which, where the reporters will say, here's what I think. And so it's, and here's why I think it, you know, which is different from partisan. It's more direct and more blunt. So it's, it's been very hard for the online news association to, um, uh, come up with exactly how they will codify that. On fake news, Facebook has started to use a consortium of fact-checking organizations to flag things that have been questioned as false. It doesn't stop you from clicking on it, but it's starting to give you a label that this, this has been questioned by independent fact-checkers. That's the first thing. They need to do a better job of it, but that's a work in progress. The biggest thing, though, is that when they find a bad publisher, like in, in Bella's Macedonia, where that's all they do, they defund them. They don't pay. Um, and that, that's, that's one of the biggest things that Google, Facebook, all, all of them can do is stop paying these guys, stop paying them their revenue stream. And if they can defund the really bad ones without there, it's, it's, it's risky business because if, what, if you are, what if you defund someone who is a legitimate political voice? But um, that's, that's what's going on. That's how that's being sorted out. Sometimes the panelists have questions. Yeah, I actually have a, a question for, for Emily. Um, because a lot of this conversation, you know, we're, we're talking about the United States and what's going on in our conversations about news in the United States. Are there similar conversations? What, the, what is the conversation about news in Iran? Is there a conversation about news? Like, what, like... Oh, yes. Um, so this hyper-partisanship, this, this massive polarization of, of dialogue and discourse, especially in newspapers, is a common feature um, since the birth of the Islamic Republic. So mm -hmm. in Iran, the media, the broadcast media is the monopoly of the state. The state runs the radio and television, but the newspapers are relatively, and again, with that caveat, free and 
diverse. And the newspapers, there's several hundred of them, um, give or take, but those actually function as de facto party um, apparatus. So those represent and reflect a political affiliation, and that becomes the voice. So all the news is incredibly slanted mm. And, mm. and has that ideological bent and uh, political motivation. Um, so I think that that, it's interesting, the, the back and forth here, but many of the, the cultural um, crises that we're going through right now, which I think a lot of this is a culture war, mm -hmm. um, Iran has already been through. Well, and I just want to follow up on that. So can, I'm just curious about how would you go about becoming a reporter in Iran? Like, what's the training like for people entering the media? And also, how does this local national split play out in Iranian media? Like, is there something analogous going on in Iranian media? Well, to be a, a reporter in Iran, you have to be um, willing to die or willing to starve to death, or willing to lose your mind in solitary confinement. So if you want to be a reporter in Iran, um, you, you should really be willing to, to put your body and your, your mind on the line. And people, yet people still do that. And especially the younger generation feel compelled to speak out, and all of a sudden you have this new medium, blogs, internet, in which you can do it and you can kind of um, try to distance yourself or um, deflect the government's eye by using various VPNs and various ways to, to hide your, your true identity. But in reality, the, the, it's a high-stakes battle. It's a high-stakes game. So I'm not sure if I Is can. Is there actually. a local versus national? Are there local media? Local there are or? local media, but... Um, Generally, the, the, the local politics and reporting and information flow, it's still, it goes through the mosque. Mm. And that's your community center, and it's word of mouth. Or, um, more recently, it's through mobile devices. There's an encrypted app called Telegram in which um, people have, create communities and followers and can send messages back and forth that are impervious or try to be impervious to government monitoring. And so that really has become the um, fulcrum of, of information sharing. Mm. I, I'll make the final question to Mr. Andrews. You were a proponent of saying that print media and the newspapers are more trustworthy, obviously, than the um, digital media. But I, I question that sometimes because the, the print media most people in, in journalism have a liberal slant by just by the nature they went into journalism rather than say business or something um, and when they have a when they come out with a an unnamed source what is the control if the name is never given couldn't someone just make up the fact that someone told them that to, to further their liberal agenda to me it makes what is the controls that are in these newspapers and these newspapers are controlled by you know large corporations in many cases and they have an agenda themselves and even Bezos, who's, who controls the, uh, the Post, right. he has an agenda himself. So everyone has an agenda. <laughs> and I, I don't think the print media should be any more distrusted than the digital media. I, I think that if you would look at, if you just take, for example, I mean, top of mind for everyone right now is the Russia investigation. And if you look at um, the, the arc line of stories that have been have been laid on anonymous sources, all but one or two uh, have been astonishingly accurate. And the, and the, when you look at somebody, so the, the New York Times has a, they all have these policies of naming, for example, um, or, or describing the anonymous sources. So when the Russia investigation, the fact that the campaign was being investigated at all, when that story broke and Mr. Trump called it fake news, um, they, list, they said, I think they said, New York Times broke the story, four current intelligent officials and two former intelligent officials. So I think what we have to do as citizens is analyze that one line. And I teach this to our students on a case-by-case -case basis. How deep do they go? Um, 
But back channel to ask about process. The way we did it at CBS, and I'm pretty sure they, this is the way they do it at the Post and the Times and the big newspapers, is the sources are known to the editors. They are known to the editors. And, um, and the editor agrees to the confidentiality that the, um, that the reporter promised the original source. So one of the ones that Comey said the Times got wrong was the idea, gosh, what did, what did he say yesterday? Comey, Comey knocked down one of the big New York Times stories, but it's one out of about eight, you know, big, big time breaks. So on balance, at least on this particular story, um, the use of anonymous sources has actually been fairly crucial. And it tends to come from intelligence officials who, especially Michael Flynn's a great example. Uh, the president sat on the idea that his national security advisor might be compromised for two weeks. And then finally someone in the FBI came forward and leaked to both papers the fact that he, you know, that, that Flynn had lied to uh, Pence, you know, as we go for, and, and Trump was denying it the whole time, but it took two weeks between the time that Mr. Trump was told um, that Flynn had lied to the vice president, okay, by the Justice Department, and his firing, I'm, I'm sorry, and the leak that, uh, that, that, where that was announced in the newspaper. I'm not really, Trump, Trump got told on day X, two weeks later, the Washington Post and New York Times broke the story. So my argument is, is to my students and to you is that, I know how this works, that represents a couple of folks either in the CIA or the FBI coming to a reporter and saying, you know what, he's not doing anything about Flynn having lied to Pence. He's sitting on it. I'm linking this to the reporter. And my argument to you is that that, is that technically illegal? Yep. Uh, is it patriotic? Yes. And this is just a little bit of what goes on in media studies. <laughs> I want to direct you to our website. Uh, I personally am sponsoring two upcoming events this spring in March. We're having Alice Marwick, who is a fellow at Data and Society, talking about celebrity in the digital age. In April, I'm sponsoring a panel, Feminism After Trump. Uh, headlined by Professor Angela McRobbie from Goldsmiths University in the UK, but also featuring Liza Featherstone, a journalist uh, in New York who teaches right now at NYU, and um, Arlene Stein, both very active in the LGBTQ uh, journalism community. Uh, and she's a professor at Rutgers University. So if you're interested, certainly these events are open to alums and the public, and we would love to have you. And I think uh, Althea has some gifts for the panelists. Thank you so much. Please help me thank this great panel. This is wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for your time this morning. Um, we have gifts on the half.